letter uh, that the Apostle Paul wrote. Jerry Bridges begins his book, The Practice of Godliness, in this way. He says, there's no higher compliment that can be paid a Christian than to call him or her a godly person. He continues, one might be a conscientious parent, a zealous church worker, a dynamic spokesperson for Christ, or a talented Christian leader, but none of these things matters if at the same time he or she is not a godly person. If you were asked the question, what is godliness? I wonder what would come to your mind as you would try to articulate an answer. We could say that godliness is a Godward devotion that leads to godlike living. It's walking in close communion with the Lord in such a way that that close communion forms our character so that we become more like Christ. In shorthand, we could say godliness is communion with God that shapes Christ-like character. So a godly someone is someone, a godly person is one who walks closely with the Lord, and it's their, their life, but, but the tone of their life, the character, they, the way they carry themselves becomes shaped by that close communion with the Lord. It's hard to define, but you know when you've met someone that's walking closely with the Lord, and that godliness just radiates off them. In Paul's letters to Timothy, first and second Timothy, he emphasizes to young Timothy over and over again the importance of pursuing godliness. Just to give you a sample of that, first Timothy four seven, Paul says we are to train ourselves to be godly. That means you're not just going to drift into godliness. It's got to take intentionality. Chapter 1 Timothy 6.11, we are, Paul says, to pursue godliness. 1 Timothy 6.6, godliness with contentment is held forth as having great gain. So godliness is the place of flourishing for the Christian. In 1 Timothy 4.8, Paul says, godliness has value for all things, holding promise for the present life and the life to come. So this is no minor theme across Paul's writings in First and Second Timothy. When we combine all of Paul's teaching here and then all the teaching elsewhere across Scripture, we see that godliness and the pursuit of it is no optional spiritual extra for some super spiritual Christians. There's no Christian who should not be interested in the pursuit of godliness, who should not be interested in the pursuit of godliness. It's for everyone. Godliness is something God has revealed in His Word that He wants us all to pursue. That is communion with God that shapes Christ-like character. Now, I introduce godliness to you this evening because in the passage we're looking at, 2 Timothy 3, it's here to help us in our pursuit of godliness. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, right through the chapter, 
Paul is instructing young Timothy on the subject of how to live a godly life in an ungodly world. God has included this in his word, so it's not just for Timothy back then. This is for us now. He gives, Paul gives Timothy and us three clear instructions to help him and us live godly lives in an an ungodly world. Let's just look at them each in turn. Instruction one. In verses one to nine, Paul says, Timothy, first you need to expect to swim against a strong current of ungodliness. Whenever Lindsay was pregnant with our first boy, Hudson, someone gave her a book called What to Expect When You're Expecting. And the whole idea was the book would kind of help Lindsay know what to expect so that when things would happen, she wouldn't be sort of alarmed and think, oh, this is abnormal. The whole idea that this was to prepare her. Prepare her. When we're doing now marriage preparation, the course we do with engaged couples, again, so much of what we do is all about what to expect when you get married. In fact, I've shared this before, the first reading we do with young couples is from a book by Paul Tripp um, called What Did You Expect? And it's all about trying to prepare young uh, engaged couples for when they're married, they're going to be ups and downs and you love each other one moment and you'll maybe be struggling a wee bit with more, more with that day in the next moment. But it's all about what to expect so that when tough things come or when things that alarm you might come, you might, you're better prepared because you knew what to expect. Well, here in verses 1 to 9, Paul is setting Timothy's expectations for his pursuit of godliness in the world. In verse 1, Paul says, Timothy, there's something you need to understand, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Now, last days, let's be clear, in the New Testament, it refers to the period, it does not refer just to the period before Christ's return. But the last days in the New Testament refers to the whole period of time between Christ's first coming and his second coming. So this is the age we're in this evening. This applies directly to us. Paul says to Timothy, and this applies to us who are still in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. Now, we shouldn't expect things to be uniformly continuously only difficult all of the time, there will be times of difficulty. That means times in this world where the church as a whole and we as individuals, we will have seasons where things are difficult. We know this down through the history of the church. We can see in different places, time periods and locations The church has come under great pressure and been persecuted. Right now, we could list countries. In fact, Open Doors has done this in their world watch list. Countries where there there is still fierce persecution of Christians. There are times and seasons of difficulty for the church gathered, but also for individual Christians. We have seasons where things are going well and we're prospering spiritually, and we have seasons where things are just hard and painful and we're confused. We were reflecting on that this morning as we started our series in Habakkuk. Paul says, Timothy, you need to expect that as you pursue a godly life in this world, you're going to be swimming against a current of ungodliness. 
And that context is going to do all it can to influence you and shape you more than your pursuit of godliness. In verses 2 to 4, Paul explains why things will be tough. He emphasizes that difficult context that will be seeking to exert and shape our lives. Verse 2, 4, and that 4 connects us to what Paul has just said. So why will things be difficult? 4, people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Paul employs 19 different expressions here to describe the characteristics of sin in this age that are trying to exert a shaping influence on us. Now, it would be tedious to go through them one by one and unpack what they all mean, but I think if we make one observation, it'll get us to the heart of what Paul's getting at. Look at first how the list of sinful characteristics begins and ends. Verse 2, people will be lovers of self. And then look at how the list ends at the end of verse 4, rather than lovers of God. In a sense, that little sandwich encapsulates what Paul is getting at here. Things are going to be really difficult because the Christians called to live the life where we die to self to follow the Lord. But you're going to be trying to do that in a context where everyone else outside of the church, they're going to be lovers of self rather than lovers of God. And that context will be constantly trying to exert a shipping influence on the people in the culture. Paul's saying the major sinful influences that are trying to rub off on you in the culture around you are self-centeredness instead of God-centeredness. This self-centeredness, he says, will find expression in pride, rebellion, This idea that the self is sovereign over all and should not be questioned. This self-centeredness will find itself in a lack of self-control. People will just pursue pleasure and comfort and material gain rather than pursuing God. There will be an all-out pursuit of comfort rather than an all-out pursuit of God. And Paul says, Timothy, that's the context you're to practice your godliness in. You're to be salt and light in that context. We as Christians are to show there is another way to live. That self-centeredness does not bring human flourishing. It actually brings anxiety. There is great freedom in self-forgetfulness. Paul goes on to explain in verses 5 to 9 that things won't be just difficult because of ungodly people, but they will also be difficult because of gospel corruptions and false teachers roundabout. This will also make the pursuit of godliness difficult. In verse 5, Paul speaks of those people who will have the appearance of godliness, 
but they will deny its power. Now, Jesus also warned of such people in his own day. He denounced groups who had merely an external appearance of godliness, but who who did not show the power of real gospel life transformation. He reserved his greatest woes for the Pharisees. Listen to what he said in Matthew 23, 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. You outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus wants us to be inside-out Christians not those who pretend on the outside while the inside is empty. There are those today who come with an appearance of godliness, but who have walked away from true faithfulness to the gospel. It can take the form of a subtle liberalism or a subtle legalism or the prosperity gospel, or it can be Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or other heretical groups. But look at what Paul instructs Timothy to do about this. We can see three instructions here. Verse 5, he's to avoid such people. Now, what he means there is don't allow them to influence you or those in the church in any significant way. Second, verses 6 to 8, Paul says indirectly, be aware of their tactics. These godless people who have a form of godliness but deny its power. He says they creep into households, they capture weak women or vulnerable women who are easily led astray. The modern-day equivalent is like the pensioner who's vulnerable to the financial scammers who prey on them. In verse 8, he cites these people, Janes and Jambres. These are the magicians who opposed Moses in the book of Exodus, who practiced their own secret arts to show that they had power. Do you remember they threw down their staffs and they became snakes? They had a power, but it was a dark power. Paul's comparing these false teachers to those who are on the side of darkness. They're corrupted in mind, disqualified regarding the faith. And Paul says you have to be aware of their tactics. You have to avoid them. But thirdly, he says, don't panic about them. They will not get very far. Their folly will be plain to all. It's easy to panic when the latest gospel heresy comes along. We can jump to action and panic and think we've got to defend everything. And I think that can be right. But we have to recognize that new corruptions of the gospel will come and go continually. I remember my professor uh, at seminary, Don Carson, speaking to us as students once. And he was speaking about what was called uh, a few years back the new perspective on Paul. A new understanding of what Paul really said and meant. And Don Carson said to us, He was an older man. He said, I've lived long enough now to see a few of these things come and go. I've seen the new perspective on Paul, the quest for the historical Jesus, the Da Vinci Code, all of that. I've learned you don't have to panic. You just steadily have to stay faithful to the apostolic gospel. New heresies will rise and fall, but don't panic. The gospel will never fall. God will make sure the gospel light keeps burning continuously. Our job is to stay faithful, to not panic, to know that heresies will come and go, but the true gospel is preserved by God himself. I find that so 
so encouraging. Paul's saying, Timothy, that's the current you're swimming against. And folks, this evening, let's recognize this is the current we're swimming against. As we seek to live godly lives in an ungodly culture, these are some of the things that mark our culture round about us. Do you ever feel discouraged with the ungodliness you see around you? Do you ever feel discouraged with the ungodliness you feel in your own heart? Well, maybe in some way, you'll find it encouraging this evening that the Lord has said in his word, don't be surprised by that ungodliness. It shouldn't surprise you. Those are the conditions in a fallen world. And we are called to be a countercultural people, a subculture of the kingdom right here in this present evil age. Salt and light, reaching out with the word of life to see people brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. Peter wrote of this in 1 Peter 4.12 when he said, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Jesus said in John 16.33, In this world you're going to have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So, steady on. We are charting a course of godliness through difficult cross currents, but the Lord steadies the ship and drives it straight. So that's the first thing Paul says to Timothy in this encouragement towards a godly life. First, know the conditions that you're charting your course of godliness through. There are cross currents everywhere. But now more positively, to pursue godliness in an ungodly world, Paul says, Timothy, seek out godly, mature Christians to learn from and emulate. Or if you're one of the older ones, seek out younger Christians to invest in. Now I see this in verse 10. Paul now calls for Timothy and his life to be marked, a marked contrast to all of the ungodliness he's just been describing. Those first two words are wonderful. You, however... Look at everything he said there from verse 2 down to verse 9, describing the ungodly characteristics of a secular age without the Lord. And then Paul just turns to Timothy and says, you, however. Now, that, that's the kind of people we want to be. You, however, people. In verse 14, Paul repeats this. But as for you... And that's coming off the back of 13, when evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned. The world can be like everything in verses 2 to 9 and verse 13, but we are called to resolve to be different. And Paul then reminds Timothy that he learned this alternative gospel-shaped lifestyle from following the apostle Paul's Example, Timothy had a godly Christian man to emulate. It was the Apostle Paul. And Paul reminds Timothy of the different things he has seen in Paul's life. 
in verses 10 and following. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Paul's saying, Timothy, you've seen it. You've seen it. You've seen me as a weak and broken Christian man try my best to live an authentic, godly life in the world. Timothy had been converted under the Apostle Paul's ministry. He had learned the, the, as a baby Christian to follow in the steps of the Apostle Paul. He learned a godly life from watching an older, mature, seasoned Christian. Paul mentions four areas where Timothy has grown through Paul's influence. And in verse 14, he urges Timothy to continue in these things. And I think this is a real gift to us. By seeing these four areas that Paul says Timothy has grown in, we can actually draw out and identify four areas that we should make it our goal to grow in four components of a godly life. First, understanding gospel content. Verse 10, you have followed my teaching. And in verse 14, Paul's going to say, look, continue in this. Continue to follow my teaching. That is the apostolic gospel. Keep growing in your understanding of the gospel truth, gospel doctrine. Listen, we never exhaust the gospel. We never come to the point where we've grasped all there is to know about the glories of what Christ did for us on the cross. We never bottom out the bottomless ocean of God's riches in Christ. We can always swim deeper and deeper and deeper into the beauty and majesty of what God has done for us in Christ. To grow in godliness, we must continue to seek to grasp more fully the glories of the depths of the gospel. Paul says, Timothy, you've followed my teaching. Now you continue in that teaching. And so as Christians, we can say, okay, God in his word speaks to us. You followed my teaching. Now continue to plumb the depths of that teaching. Grow in your understanding of gospel content and gospel doctrine. And if you say, oh, I've heard it all before. The gospel's boring to me. Cry out to God in repentance. Ask him to awaken you to the glory and beauty and majesty of what God has done for you. It should never be boring to you. So keep understanding gospel content. Timothy, you followed my teaching. Keep doing that. Second, seek to embody gospel conduct. Paul says, you have not just followed my teaching, but my conduct. Over and over again in the New Testament, we see that we're not just called to understand gospel doctrine, but we are called to embody the gospel with gospel-shaped living. That means we are to love as we've been loved by God in Christ. We're to forgive as we've been forgiven by God in Christ. We are to welcome one another as we have been welcomed by God in Christ. Paul says, Timothy, you followed my teaching. You followed my conduct. Keep growing in this area. You want to live a godly life. Work to understand the deep truths of the gospel. Work to have your whole life shaped by that gospel. Third, seek to exemplify 
gospel intentionality. This is wonderful. Paul says, Timothy, you followed my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, and steadfastness. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have someone look at your life and say, man, I can see that person's aim in life. It's God. It's godliness. One aim, to pursue God. Paul was a one-thing-I-do kind of man. In Philippians 3, 12 to 14, Paul said, One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Strive to be a one thing I do, Christian. One thing I'm doing. I have a clear aim. I am just all out after God. I want to know him more. I want to love him more. I want to love the Bible more. I want to be, be more lost in communion with God in prayer. I want to parent as a godly Christian. Or if I'm single, I want to battle to find my contentment in God in this lot that he's given me. We don't want to just be another half-hearted, material, half-baked, materialistic, half-baked Christian. We want to be real, the real deal, all out after God. To have a clear aim in life, clearly articulated faith, patience, love, and steadfastness as we pursue the Lord. No one drifts into excellence. We've got to have a clear aim. What is your clear aim in life as a Christian? What is it? Could you clearly articulate? If someone said, what's your aim in life? What is it? What is the aim of this church? Well, our mission statement is clear. We exist to glorify God by enjoying and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is a lovely mission to make the mission of your life. To enjoy the gospel, to live in the goodness of it, and then out of the overflow of that enjoyment to proclaim the gospel. Be intentional in your family, among your friends, with your friends, with your family, with your colleagues at work. Be intentional about your life, every aspect of your life. Be intentional in letting every part of your life serve your growth in godliness. Paul says, Timothy, you've learned to follow my aim in life, my faith, patience, love, and steadfastness continue in these things. Then fourthly, Paul says to Timothy, you've also seen how to endure gospel opposition. Verse 11, you've seen my persecutions, my sufferings, my endurance in the midst of them. Here's an area to grow in. Timothy, expect challenges and strive to be faithful in the midst of them. Keep trusting, keep looking to the Lord we are called as Christians to what Eugene Peterson has called a long obedience in the same direction. There will be seasons where things are going well and seasons where things are hard. The Christian life is not just a wee one-hour easy jet flight from Belfast to Stansted. It's a long-haul flight from Belfast to Australia. <laughs> and there's turbulence along the way at different points. You're called to settle in, to be faithful for the long haul to expect gospel opposition, to expect challenges, 
to expect joys and encouragements. But you've got to be ready, tenacious, steady, so that when the difficulties come, you won't be shaken, but you'll have decided in your heart, God is sovereign, God is good, always good, always good, always has a good plan. I'm so encouraged when I see older saints in this church who have endured the trials of everything this world has to throw at them and are still shining for the Lord. Through grief and pain and brokenness, everyone has their own story of joys and trials, but there's something very special about seeing an older Christian who continues with that love for the Lord right to the end. And you look at it and just say, I want to be like that. So Paul says to Timothy, look, you've seen my life. You've followed my example in all my weaknesses. You've seen my genuine desire to walk with God. Continue in these things. Continue to work hard to understand the gospel more and more. Continue to embody that gospel conduct in your life. Seek to exemplify a clear aim in life to live for the glory of God. Be ready to endure opposition. Paul said Timothy had learned all of that from following him. And that's why I make this second point here if we're going to pursue godliness, we need to find older godly Christians. I'm speaking especially to the younger people here. Find older godly Christians, and you look at their life, and you know they're not perfect, you know that they're, sin- they're still sinners saved by grace, but you see something of godliness in their life, and you want to emulate it. Get around those people. Try to spend time with those people. You have so much to learn from older, seasoned saints. I prayed for a long time as a young man that God would give me an older godly mentor, someone just to meet with, to talk with, to pray with. And I'm so thankful for a man called Doogie Mark, who's now in glory with the Lord. He was a Presbyterian minister. He worked for Open Doors. He used to meet me at about 6 a.m. for breakfast. He was an early riser, and he would say, this is when I was younger, and he would be like, 6 a.m., okay? And I'd be like, oh, yes, of course, no problem. And I'd be absolutely trailing myself out of bed to get there in time. He'd already spent an hour with the Lord by the time I got there. He just talked with me. He poured my cereal. He poured the milk in that he gave me apple juice. And he just said, how can I pray for you? It was lovely. Be praying. God, give me someone like that in my life that would just be there to encourage and build into me. It's a gift. If you're here and you're older, let me encourage you. Don't be afraid to reach out to and invite younger Christians into your life and experience. I know that is not something that was always done in the generation before me. But it's biblical to open up your life and to invite younger people in so that they can learn from some of the storms you have weathered already. You have wisdom to share with younger Christians even if you don't feel you have. Let me ask, is there a young Christian in your life, older people now speaking to mainly, is there a younger Christian in your life who you are intentionally trying to invest in or pour into in some way? It might be here in church, just you just find one person, you think, I'm just going to show a little bit more interest. That could be a lovely first step. And again, I see so many of you doing this, and it is so wonderful. Let's 
continue in these things. Let's do it all the more. Inviting each other around, out for coffees. Inviting each other into our homes. Let's strive to build this community where the older men are pouring into the younger men, the older women are pouring into the younger women, and we're all growing together. That is a beautiful picture of the church. So, if you want to grow in godliness, seek out godly, mature Christians, learn from them, seek to emulate them, seek to invest in one another. Third part then, very briefly, um, in this pursuit of godliness in an ungodly world, simply this, just make growth in personal godliness your goal, whether you're young or old. Verse 12, Paul says to Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life, desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Do you see how Paul just assumes that it will be Timothy's and every Christian's desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus? Desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. That is a wonderful goal to work towards. Could you make it your prayer, even now, just where you're sitting, Lord, this is my aim, to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. Teach me what that is. Help me to do it. Bring people along who'll help me to do it. Help me to help others do it. I'll not be perfect, but Lord, help me to grow and to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. That is a noble aim for your life. You know, whenever we stand before the Lord in glory, we will realize there was nothing more practical than prayer. Nothing more practical than reading our Bible. That the most significant things we did were probably on our knees. Let's seek to grow in our understanding of the gospel. Let's seek to embody gospel values more and more. Let's have a clear aim. Let's be intentional about how we use our lives, and let's strive to persevere in the face of the rising tide of secularism and gospel opposition. Paul says to Timothy and us, in your pursuit of godliness, expect challenges. Seek out and follow godly examples that are ahead of you. But you, Timothy, you make it your own personal goal to be godly. Now, next week, Stephen Hogg is going to help us. He's preaching in the evening to help us to see in the next passage the importance of God's Word for our growth in godliness. That wonderful passage, do you see it there, 16 and 17? All Scriptures breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God or the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Word is essential. There's no shortcuts. <laughs> if you're going to pursue godliness, you need to get into your Bible. But that's next week. I'm not going to take Stephen's sermon from him. But there's three instructions this evening from 2 Timothy 3 on how to pursue godliness in an ungodly world. Expect to swim upstream. Seek out godly examples to follow. Make growth in godliness something you're personally committed to. And always remember, God is so for you in this. His power is at work within us to make us and shape us into what he wants us to be. For this pursuit of godliness, we have everything we need in Christ. God is so for us in this. Let's pray.
Father, thank you so much for this very practical section of your word. We want to take seriously growth in godliness. This life where we walk with you and where our walk with you shapes our character so that we actually begin to reflect the beauty of your Son. And Lord, we know that that will not just happen. Uh, We won't just drift into godliness. It's something we have to be intentional about, to make personal godliness, godliness our own priority. Lord, we're sorry for our ungodliness. We're sorry for all the ways that that shaping influence of this fallen world it, it does shape us in different ways. Sometimes we find ourselves, and we are more self-centered than God-centered, and we don't want to be like that. So forgive us and flip us inside out so that we will be more consumed from the inside out with you and your glory than we are with ourselves and our glory. Help us, Lord, to grow in godliness as a church and as individuals. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to respond by rising to sing, It is well with my soul. Let's stand and praise God together.
and now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all now and forevermore. Amen.